discovered buried in a garden, a half-man, half-beast appearing in bedrooms, and archaeologists appearing to become distressed or possessed. This is the strange mystery of the Hexham Heads. Hexham is the name of a small northern market town located 20 miles west of the English city of Newcastle-upon-Tyne and located a few miles from Tadrian's Wall. The story begins one February afternoon in 1972 when 11-year-old Colin Robson was playing in his garden at the family home of 3 Reed Avenue, Hexham. He was having a go at weeding. When he looked down at the ground, there was a lump there and it appeared to be a large stone, approximately the size of a tennis ball. Clearing away the grass and earth around it, he reached down to pick it up and he saw that it appeared to have human features on it, like a face. The young boy was filled with excitement at his unusual find and he shouted for his brother Leslie to come and see what he'd discovered. Leslie was astonished at his brother's discovery, and not to be outdone, he frantically started to dig the ground. It was not long before Leslie too had found a second strange head. One appeared to be a boy, and the other a girl. They were a pale, greenish stone colour. The boy had short hair carved into his head. Both of their faces were carved too. Neither of the spaces were pretty, but the girl's was the worst. She would go on to be given the name, the hag or the witch, for she had a large hook nose and what was described as wild, bulging eyes. Dr Kenneth Brophy of Glasgow University calls the find one of the most remarkable and controversial examples of urban prehistory that I can think of. These frankly weird objects were found in a normal garden and consisting of a pair of fist-sized stones with creepy little faces. The discovery of the two strange heads was to see the start of a chain of events that quickly escalated, he says, until museums, archaeologists, geologists, the media all wanted a piece of the action. What makes this an especially weird story, he says, is that it draws on another type of archaeology, sinister stones, ancient rites and dealing with things we cannot comprehend. It is a strange story full of inexplicable and disturbing events and a cast of characters. Well, after Leslie's discovery of the two heads in the garden, they rushed indoors with them to show their parents, and this would initiate the chain of events. The heads had moved position. They now seemed to be facing an entirely different direction from the one they'd been left in on the mantelpiece when the family had gone to bed. The heads had seemingly rotated during the night while the family were asleep. The boys denied any part in moving them, as did the rest of the family. There were other strange incidents too. One night, one of the daughter's beds was showered with glass and the two daughters who shed that bedroom were quick to move out of it. And according to Paul Screeton, a northern journalist who investigated the case in the 1970s for his book, Quest for the Hexham Heads, said a lone flower suddenly bloomed and seemed to glow. It was glowing somehow iridescently in the exact spot where one of the heads had been. He said, 
After the burial of their budgerigar, one night, they saw a mysterious bright light a short distance above the ground. But it was not just their house that was affected. A Mrs Eileen Dodds and her family, who lived in a co-joined house next door, were too. Mrs Dodds had been sleeping in one of her children's bedrooms, as her child had been unwell. She suddenly woke, startled to find a half-sheep, half-man creature standing in her bedroom. When it saw that she was awake, it turned and padded downstairs and went out the front door. She told a Tyneside newspaper in 1972, I'd gone into the children's bedroom to sleep with one of them who was unwell, and my ten-year-old son Brian kept telling me that he felt something touching him. I told him not to be so silly. Then I saw this shape. It came towards me and I definitely felt it touch me on the legs. Then, on all fours, it moved out of the room. I was absolutely terrified and screamed for my husband. Next door, Colin and Leslie's mother, Mrs Robson, later said that on the same night, she had heard a cracking sound and screams coming from next door. Mrs Dodds told Mrs Robson that those sounds came from a thing that looked like a werewolf. Now, it has to be said that one researcher back then, Stuart Ferrell, for the Fortean Times magazine, said that he heard a tale of a local prank that happened that same night, which involved a drunk man and a stolen sheep carcass on his back, which had been stolen from a nearby abattoir, and that he'd been seen staggering up Reed Road where they all lived. Well, did this prank really happen? And if it did, it would be a remarkable coincidence that Mrs Dodds was seen to see a half-man, half-sheep in her bedroom. Although how and quite why the man would have got into her bedroom at the risk of arrest and jail was not explained. For Mrs Dodds, however, this was no mere mortal man. She became so terrified afterwards that she went to her local council and asked them to rehouse her somewhere else. The council was surprisingly sympathetic and they actually agreed to move her and her family to another house after hearing her describe her terrible nighttime ordeal. Scientist Dr Don Robbins, a chemist who became involved in the original investigation into the mystery heads, on hearing of this strange nighttime visitor, drew a tentative parallel between the half-man, half-sheep seen in Mrs Dodd's bedroom and a creature from Norse mythology called the Wolver, a powerful and dangerous creature, he said. Well, next to come into the story was a lorry driver called Des Craigie. He had been a lifelong resident of Hexham, and when the discovery of the Stoneheads began to be reported in the local and national newspapers, and archaeologists and scientists began to form theories about the origin of these ancient heads, he came forward to the local newspaper to claim that he had actually created the two heads himself, from concrete, and that he had once lived in the house where the heads had been discovered, at Three Reed Avenue. He told the newspaper Chronicle that he had made the heads to entertain his daughter when she was a child. Rather embarrassingly, this revelation came after many leading figures in the disciplines of archaeology and science 
had been studying the heads, thinking them to be ancient artifacts. And indeed, one leading archaeologist had declared them to be ancient Celtic heads. This archaeologist, Dr. Anne Ross, said that after much investigation, she had come to the conclusion that these heads were of Roman Celtic origin and part of the pagan head cult tradition. The Celts had settled in the northeast England area and they were known to revere the human head as a gruesome charm. The practice of the Celts was such that they would set the severed heads of their vanquished enemies over their barns and houses. This practice had been particularly rife in West Yorkshire and Northumberland, where Hexham was. Dr Ross believed that the stone heads found by the boys would have been part of a Celtic shrine. These newly discovered heads were symbolic of otherworldly powers, she said although the professor admitted that she was struggling to pin down the date that these heads had been created. She went on to write about her findings in Journal Archaeologia Elena in 1973. Meanwhile, Professor Frank Hodgson of the University of Southampton said, in his opinion, the heads were comprised of sandstone and Dr Douglas Robson determined that the material from which the heads have been formed is an artificial cement, which would seem to imply that, in his opinion, these heads were not thousands of years old, as Dr Ross believed. Meanwhile, Dr Don Robbins, the chemist and the originator of the claim that the bedroom appearance of a half-man, half-beast in Mrs Dodd's bedroom was most likely the wolver, collaborated on a book called The Secret Language of Stone with Dr Anne Ross, she of the Celtic Head Cult Thesis. Robbins determined that in his opinion, the material from which the heads had been formed was unlike any natural sandstone. And he became convinced that the heads added proof to the theory of stone tape. This was a theory first developed in the 19th century by psychic researchers such as Charles Babbage. And it's the idea that natural objects can become imbued with memories of events and emotions and that they can record and replay memories of events gone by, like a tape recorder, and that this can cause hauntings and poltergeists. The two stone heads Robson the chemist proposed were behaving like tape recorders and replaying past events, hence the appearance of the were-creature, the wolver. Lorry driver Des Craigie, meanwhile, was adamant that he created the heads himself in the 1950s, so much so that when he discovered his son reading about the heads in a new Reader's Digest book called Folklore, Myths and Legends, featuring Dr Ross's proclamation that these heads were very ancient Celtic cult heads. He contacted the editor of the publication to ask him to remove the story. Although it didn't end up being removed, presumably because the book was already out in print. The lorry driver was insistent. These were modern creations, he said. Nancy played with them as dolls. He said, one got broken and I threw it in the bin. The others just got kicked around and must have landed up where the lads found them. 
to say that they were old would be conning people. Mr. Craigie managed to be reunited with the heads briefly after they'd been given to the Newcastle Museum of Antiquities. Two resident archaeology experts, Roger Mickett and David Smith, determined that these stone heads were very likely thousands of years old and of Celtic origin. According to Peter Brooksmith, editor of Phenomenon magazine, the lorry driver astounded the curator at the Museum of Antiquities with his claims, and the curator, believing of course that these were precious historic relics, became alarmed. She was so security conscious that she wouldn't allow them to be viewed by him until another officer was present. The curator obviously believed they were highly rare Celtic artefacts and feared that damage might be done to them without proper and careful handling. The lorry driver reiterated to her, they weren't rare, they were a mere 16 years old. Well, the British Museum in London also had possession of the heads for a time, but the museum gave them back. It was said that the staff there had become unsettled by strange happenings, and it was decided that the heads should no longer be kept there for the sake of their staff. Meanwhile, the journalist Paul Screeton reported another bizarre aspect of the tale. Two months before the brothers rediscovered the originals in Reed Avenue, Colin Robson, then 11, made a clay model head at junior school, similar to those which were discovered in Reed Avenue. It was for a competition. The master said it was ugly and commented that it should have had a proper neck. How strange. For completeness, Paul Spreeton, the journalist, says, I should add that the repulsive-looking head, painted black, brown, red and blue, and with two broken fangs, was judged second in the contest. Mrs Robson, the boy's mother, told the press, It is remarkable in its likeness to the heads found in the garden. Collins said the idea of making this head just came to him. However, no one felt that Colin or his brother had made the two heads that they'd dug up. Screeton also adds that Dr Anne Ross of the Celtic Head Cult claim refers to the continuing folklore of the heads, yet within this context, a belief in its powers of averting evil and keeping the supernatural at bay. Yet for most, it is far from apposite in reference to the scarifying manifestations. Was Greeton saying this because it wasn't just the neighbour, Mrs Dodds, who would fall victim to frightening supernatural events, as a direct result, it would seem, of the unearthing of the two stone heads. And so, in other words, rather than these Celtic heads keeping monsters and evil spirits at bay, it seemed to be drawing them in. Museums were handing them back, saying staff felt too uncomfortable to work with them there. And it would transpire that Dr Ross herself would find that, unlike the Celtic warriors who mounted their enemies' decapitated heads on poles to keep the evil out, in the case of these two stone heads, it seemed to be letting evil in. Everyone who came into contact with them would find themselves besieged by unnatural occurrences that were unsettling, to say the least. And this included the appearance again of the wolver. Dr Anne Ross, who one would imagine to be a rational scientist, 
would soon find her house had become host to the wolver too, after she took possession of the heads. Dr. Ross said she woke one night at about 2am, feeling very cold and very fearful, and saw the most astonishing sight. She said, I woke up and felt extremely frightened, in fact, panic-stricken and terribly, terribly cold. There was a sort of dreadful atmosphere of icy coldness all around me. And something made me look towards the door. And as I looked, I saw this thing going out of it. It was about six feet high, slightly stooping, and it was black against the white door. It was half animal, half man. The upper part, I would have said, was a wolf, and the lower part was human. And I would have said that it was covered with a kind of black, very dark fur. It went out, and I just saw it clearly, and then it disappeared, and something made me run after it, a thing I wouldn't normally have done, but I felt compelled to run after it. I got out of bed, and I ran, and I could hear it going down the stairs. Then it disappeared towards the back of the house. Dr David Clark, Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Bristol University and teacher of law, but also a lifelong Fortean, said, When I interviewed Ross in 94, she told me the stones brought an evil presence with them. She said, There was no doubting the haunting was that of a werewolf. The thing took form very gradually, and when it actually became not just audible and hinted at, but tangible and visible, something had to be done, because... It was definitely growing. Well, the house was subsequently exercised, apparently, said Dr. Clark. On another occasion, Dr. Ross came home with her husband, Richard, also an archaeologist, to find their daughter, Bernice, very distressed. When they asked her what was wrong, she managed to explain that she had come home earlier that afternoon to find a large black shape rushing down the stairs. As it reached halfway down the stairs, it apparently vaulted over the banister, landing on the floor with a soft thud on padded animal feet. Dr. Ross and her husband rushed through the house to see if there was perhaps an intruder, but none could be found in any of the rooms. And the description of the creature sounded very much like the half-man, half-beast Dr. Ross had seen in her bedroom. At the turn of the 20th century, in the same area, a wolf was said to be roaming loose, and this was just minutes from the location of where the two heads had been found. It was known as the Wolf of Allendale. Wolf at large in Allendale said the headlines of the Hexham Current on December the 10th, 1904. In the three preceding weeks, farmers around the village of Allendale had been waking to find many of their livestock had inexplicably vanished or were found terribly mutilated with hideous wounds. Many had been disemboweled or decapitated, with their heads missing or bodies missing. The finger of suspicion was pointed immediately at a Captain Bain of nearby Shotley Bridge, who owned a large grey wolf. However, after the local constabulary looked into it, they discovered that this wolf was only an infant of just four months old. It was far too small to be capable of marauding and massacring entire herds of sheep. The locals began to fear that the beast responsible had to be a creature of mythical proportions or of supernatural origin, and it was stalking the vicinity.
For what else was capable of such destruction? They nervously wondered. And what else was it capable of? Hysteria soon set in. For wolves had long since been extinct in this area. There were no wild wolves here. Women and children were warned that they must stay indoors after sundown. Big lamps were lit to burn all night in an attempt to scare off the wolf. The local Member of Parliament, Major Wentworth Henry Canning Beaumont, put forward a reward of £5 for the wolf's skin. A considerable sum of money in those days. And the Hexham Wolf Committee was set up. Soon, a posse of over 100 men all formed together, armed with shotguns and lanterns, and a systematic hunt for the wolf began. They even brought in a renowned pack of hunting dogs called the Hayden Hounds, who were known for their excellent ability to track down wild animals. However, this expert pack of dogs could not find the wolf, nor could they find any scent to track. Through winter, the hunt continued, but all to no avail. Sheep were still disappearing, or being discovered horribly mutilated, or almost eaten entirely. The Hex and Wolf Committee were at a loss about what to do, until the idea of summoning a famed hound who went by the name of Monarch. The famous Fortean writer Charles Fort wrote in the early 1900s that when this celebrated bloodhound arrived, it was with such a look of sagacity that the sheep farmer's troubles were supposed to be over. The wise dog was put on what was supposed to be the trail of the wolf. But if there weren't any wolves, who can blame a celebrated bloodhound for not smelling something that wasn't? The dog sniffed, then he sat down. It was impossible to set this dog on the trail of a wolf, though each morning he was taken to a place of fresh slaughter. The invisible wolf was yet again impossible to track, impossible to find. Next, the wolf committee turned to their last option. In came a Mr Biddick to save the day. Like the famous hound monarch, Mr Biddick was a famous tracker too, and he surely could not fail. For his reputation preceded him. The Hexham Herald declared, the right man at last, and Charles Fort describes Biddick's arrival, which was greeted with much expectation and desperation. He said, the wolf committee met him at the station. There was a plaid shawl strapped to his back, and the flaps of his hunting cap were considered unprecedented. Almost everybody had confidence in the shawl. The devices by which he covered his ears made beholders feel that they were in the presence of science. Mr Biddick was a most talented tracker and a big game hunter too. Yet, much as he tried, he too failed to pick up on the trail of the beast. There were no tracks to follow, no scent could be found. The sheep slaughter continued apace. The local newspaper said four sheep were killed at Lobe Eschelles and one at Sedham in one night on both sides of the River Tyne. Something kept on slaughtering. Meanwhile, the tracker, Mr Biddick, was going farm to farm, sifting and dating and classifying observations 
drawing maps, card indexing his data, but still no luck. Then, on December the 29th, the local courier announced, Wolf killed on railroad line. This was at Cumwinton, a hamlet 30 miles away from Hexham. However, all the experts said this wolf was not capable of killing sheep. By the end of January, however, all sheep attacks had stopped. Well, not much is known about this wolf found at Cumwinton, as it seems the locals were just so relieved that the seemingly preternatural attacks had ceased. And so all we know is that all of the experts involved proclaimed that it wasn't this wolf that had killed all the sheep. But yet the attacks did indeed end. Although quite how this wolf would have travelled without leaving any tracks or any scent to follow, well, no longer mattered because the attacks had stopped and the mystery left to fade into the distance. As the farmer's livelihood was no longer at stake and the children and women were just glad to be allowed outside again. We're back now to the continuing story of the Hexham Heads and Dr Anne Ross had insisted that the wolf creature that had appeared in her bedroom was very real. Or rather, they had really seen it. She said it was not something shadowy or only glimpsed out the corner of their eye. It was solid and it was noisy and everyone who came to the house commented on a definite presence of evil, she told Dr Clark. And she insisted it appeared on more than one occasion. Dr Ross was so unnerved that she not only gave the two Hexham heads away so that they were no longer in her house, she gave away her entire collection, which was her life's work in essence. She could not bear any of them around her, not after what she'd been through. Ross believed she had come under the influence of an ancient curse. She told researcher Paul Devereux, who was editor at the time of the Lay Hunter magazine, that she had had the heads removed from her house because, if she did not, she feared the entire breakdown of her family. According to Paul Screeton, the northern journalist, she had told Devereux that the heads were buried. But this must have been some time later because the next person to take possession of the heads was Dr Robbins, the chemist. He arrived at Dr Ross's house very enthusiastically. However, the moment he placed the heads inside his car, his car failed to start. Not to be deterred, however, he apparently turned around to the back seat where he'd placed the heads, looked directly at them and said aloud to them, stop that, all the electronics in his car, then came back on and his car started working again. Unfazed, he set off to drive home. However, brave though at first he may have appeared to be, given the reputation the heads now had, it would not be long before he too came to regret his decision to become custodian of the heads. Back home, the chemist began to become just as disturbed as his predecessor, Dr Ross. He later declared to Screeton, there was no doubt that any influence the heads possessed came from the girl. He means the girl's stone head, or the hag as she had been called, due to her hooked nose and wild, bulging eyes. He said, I felt most uncomfortable sitting there with them looking at me and eventually turned them around. As we did so, I had the distinct impression that the girl's eyes slid round watching me. One day, upon leaving the house to go out, he said to the heads, let's see something when I get back. 
It was probably tempting fate here. Moments later, he re-entered the house having forgotten to take a book with him. Outside it was fresh and blustery, but in his study where the heads were, the chemist said the atmosphere seemed almost electric with a stifling, breathless quality. Attributing the effects to the girl head, he left hurriedly. The last known handler of the heads was a man called Frank Hyde. He was what's known as a dowser, and he said he wanted to carry out some experiments with the heads. What experiments he carried out, and what results came from the experiments, is not known, for the end to this confusing and bizarre mystery is yet another enigma. Because not only did the heads disappear, but so too did the researcher. Robbins, the chemist who gave the heads to him, said, Frank Hyde seemed to have vanished as completely as if he walked into a fairy hill in a folk tale. The location of the dowser, as well as the heads, remains now a complete mystery. Thank you.